Welcome third year research students to the next installment of the research podcast that we're going to um, have every Friday to recap and refresh ourselves on the course material um, for the module. Um, so as I said to you in the last podcast, um, this session is just very briefly to go over the key theories that we've already covered in class. Um, some of the, the main ideas that you need to be familiar with and to start to get you thinking and engaging with them so that when we get back to class we can um, continue with uh, the other theories that we're going to be covering in the module as well as using these theories to uh, plan for, prepare for the assessments. So um, that's what we're going to do in this session. Um, of the theories that we um, are going to be looking at in in um, in the course in general, the ones that we've already covered and the ones that I'm going to go over today are the rational self-interest theory, moral panic, the authoritarian personality theory, and frustration aggression. Um, so these are the first four theories that we've already spoken about in class. And they're actually um, ones that I grouped together in my thinking because... They um, tend to be the established theories coming out of the West that um, underpin our understandings of crime and violence uh, in the literature. Um, we have spoken in class uh, in some depth about the limitations of these theories and I want you to keep critiquing them and engaging with them in, in that kind of deep way going forward as well. Um, so these are not theories that I want, I'm putting out there as being um, the best theories to understand crime and violence. Instead, rather, these are ones that dominate in the literature. They dominate in, in the ways that um, academics have understood this topic. Um, and so they're ones that we have to pay attention to, um, but in critical ways to be able to build new understandings of what we're seeing in the world to expand our theoretical um, knowledge base and to keep pushing uh, what we know about crime and violence forward. So as I said, the four that we're going to cover today, the first of those is rational self-interest. Um, and it's, it really is encapsulated in, in the, the name. The idea of rationality, that it's, um, that it's about... Uh, people trying to think logically or rationally about their own lives, and then, but with uh, a self-interest um, in that, in that they are committing crime to benefit themselves in some kind of way. So the primary motivation for violence in this model is that it allows an individual or a group to obtain either items, so objects or money, um, or privilege that will give them some kind of economic or social boost. So um, a person commits crime or they're motivated to, to commit crime because it, it is of benefit to themselves. It, it has a self-interest. Um, so for example, a person steals uh, an object because they don't have that object, and that object will improve their lives in some way. Whether it, as I said earlier, was money, or a cell phone, or a laptop, or um, a car, 
So whatever it is that an individual is committing crimes towards, they're doing so to, um, to obtain some kind of economic or social boost. And that also suggests that things like um, corruption or white-collar crimes, that those two are committed with some kind of interest, whether it be power or um, uh, financial gain or that they are able to uh, grow their portfolio in some kind of way that, that benefits their career, that those are all uh, self-interested motivations. The second reason that, um, or the second point under rational self-interest that we must take seriously is, is that uh, rational self-interest theory does not look at the context or other motivations for violence. So because it is focusing on that self-interest uh, element, it forgets about things like sy uh, systematic social violence, crimes of passion, and other kinds of reasons like that that may motivate individuals to, to commit crime. So things that are, are based in, for example, institutional violence, uh, that are based in law, um, if we think about... Um, uh, violence, uh, if, for example, killing someone, right? If we um, were to kill someone because it would would allow us to um, inherit their property, that would be rational self-interest. But killing someone um, uh, in terms of the death penalty, um, that doesn't necessarily immediately have that same kind of self-interest um, motivations behind it. And um, that kind of uh, practice, which is instituted in law and in justice, um, wouldn't easily be understood under the rational self-interest model. So, so rational self-interest can only really explain some kinds of crime and violence um, and not everything. The third point that I want to stress about rational self-interest is that it, is, uh, it suggests that... Um, Policing and security, as well as incarceration, are the, um, the answers to crime and violence. Because if the reasons that we are committing crime and violence is that we are getting some kind of benefit, then if the punishment outweighs the benefit, so if, if, we, are, if we know we are going to be caught and we know we are going to be severely punished, then we are less likely to be motivated to commit that crime because that's not in our self-interest, right? It's not in our self-interest to, to steal that car because we're not going to end up with a, a, a cushy life with a fancy Mercedes. Instead, we're going to be behind bars and there's no you know, reward for that. In fact, it's only punishment. So in this model, it's saying that the answers to crime and violence are policing and security. And again, we can critique that by saying that um, we know even in, in countries where there is things like the death penalty and there is um, severe incarceration um, for uh, prisons, uh, for, for crime and violence in society, that that doesn't necessarily um, stop crime and violence. In fact, many of the countries that have almost no uh, prisons or have very genteel prisons where you still have a lot of privileges 
tend to be the societies where there is very low levels of uh, certainly of violent crime. So it doesn't quite add up. Um, so we know that this theory does give us a perspective to understand crime and violence, but it is maybe not necessarily the best one. It doesn't allow us to understand crime and violence as a whole, and there are certainly moments where it doesn't uh, particularly make sense. So we, we take that as, a, as a, a first stepping stone into thinking about crime and violence. The next theory that I want to briefly go over is moral panic. Um, and moral panic is uh, one that um, we looked at a lot in relation to um, the, the movie uh, Bowling for Columbine, which was about uh, guns in America. Um, because the, all of the reasons why people were explaining uh, a lot of gun violence in America were in fact true of other places. So um, things like um, that there are a lot of guns or that people like to hunt or that they have a history of violence. That was true of, of lots of places. Canada has a lot of guns and they like to hunt. Germany um, uh, has a history of violence. And none of these places had quite the same amount of gun violence as, as the States. But what the States did have that wasn't anywhere else was fear primarily generated through the media. So the moral panic theory um, is one that uh, we could certainly unpack and think about in relation to the states in terms of gun violence, but also in terms of violence elsewhere as well. Um, so moral panic is broadly defined as a collective state of fear or panic. But it is not, um, it's not a fear or panic towards a direct, obvious uh, cause. So it is not your direct fear of, um, of a clear and obvious threat. It is instead a threat that is uh, created or more exaggerated um, or displaced in relation to um, the way that society operates. So um, the fear is exaggerated and it is usually that there is something happening that is uh, misrepresented or exaggerated in this representation, particularly in the media, that the fear is disproportionate to the actual risk that, that people experience um, and it takes on this exaggerated quality by the ways that these representations define events um, and, and various kinds of people by using very narrow definitions of who to fear and when. So if we could take um, any example of um, you know, a, a single event of somebody being uh, harassed or, or violated and we make that a fear for everybody, when in fact the real fear is something else. Um, and again, in class we spoke a lot about these kinds of fears, particularly in relation to um, xenophobia, and that we are, as South Africans, often, in uh, certainly at some moments more than others, but um, 
We're often fearful of uh, foreign Africans in the country, when in fact, if we if we try to really understand the economics of um, of the country, the the threat that that people feel towards foreigners that they are stealing their jobs might better be directed to history, to the ways in which uh, labor has been organized in the country, and to politics and the ways that um, economic decisions uh, within governance are shaping what kinds of jobs are available, etc. So that's an example of, of the ways that the fear of unemployment in the country is shaping particular kinds of violence, um, but that, that the people who are being targeted for that violence are not necessarily the actual cause of the problem. Um, and the, the ways that they're being targeted is, is in relation to how people define that, those events and the ways that they define the people involved in those events. Um, so how we decide who is at fault for unemployment and why and how we make it a foreign issue is the cause of the problem in this case. And as I said before, it's, it, this um, is very much um, connected to the, the ways that the media um, engages with um, events in the world. And the last point I want to make about moral panic is that it allows for the justification and use of extreme measures by police, by communities, by individuals, um, to curb the, the, the feelings of, of threat that they are feeling. So um, if individuals are feeling threatened by foreigners, they are then justified to act on that. Um, the same happens... Um, we saw in Marikana, the police were feeling threatened by the, the strikers, um, and they then acted on that, um, even though the real threat, of course, is coming from uh, the ways in which uh, mining is happening in the country, mining companies, the mining company uh, relationships with unions, with government, um, all of that kind of stuff. So think about those examples from the movies that we've seen. Okay, moving on to the next theory. Um, the third theory that I'm going to cover today is frustration-aggression. And frustration-aggression um, is hyphenated frustration-aggression because very simply um, the theory believes that frustration leads to aggression, leads to violence. So when an individual um, is frustrated when their goals and their desires are blocked in some kind of way, they lash out. Um, and so that lashing out um, is directly connected to those feelings of frustration. Um, and often that aggression is not directed at the real cause. In fact, much like in moral panic, it's not directed at the real cause of the problem, but it is directed towards scapegoats or more... in. Uh, uh, more vulnerable individuals within society. Um, and there's that, that famous example that people use is daddy will come home from, from work where his boss shouted at him. He will kick the woman. The woman will kick the child. The child will kick the, the dog. Um, and, you know, there's a sort of uh, hierarchy 
in which this violence tends to happen. Now, of course, that's a very gendered hierarchy. There are others. Um, but there is that kind of sense in which um, the violence, as it's understood by frustration aggression hypothesis, is, um, is a downward kind of experience. So people at the top um, release their frustration onto um, people lower down on, the, on that hierarchy. The next point um, that's important about frustration aggression is that um, the, the ways that this theory thinks about violence is that it, in a sense, treats aggression as a normal response to frustration. Um, so there's, that, there's a danger that, um, that we think of aggression as just being a human a natural human reaction to um, when things go wrong in, in one's own life. Um, which, while it is certainly a common response, is not necessarily normal. Um, so we need to, to think through the ways in which um, individuals might also take their frustration and develop coping mechanisms or resilience um, in society and to how we can promote those uh, rather than um, accepting violence as the, the natural way that people deal with uh, frustration. Um, and I know that certainly um, in South Africa we've spoken um, a bit about the ways that violence is normalised um, in class and we can continue to talk about the, the, the ways that violence is normalised. But... Um, but certainly those are, are, within this course, key things that we want to interrogate and make sense of. So why is it that, um, that when a, a kid comes home from, from school and they tell their parents that they've been bullied, is the normal response that I've seen on social media and amongst family and amongst uh, you know, uh, many South Africans, is the normal response to say, well... I'm going to teach you how to block some him um, tomorrow. And I apologize if that's, um, you know, like a terrible language, but that's the kind of language that we see when people talk about these, these things. Um, so, um, you know, the, the response to, to frustration is to, to be violent, and that, that is as seen as... Um, Normal, certainly, There's the, that word comes up a, a lot, of the normalizing of violence, but also as, as desirable, that we, we, we think that that is the appropriate um, response in many cases. And what that also then does, and this is the, the, the last point I want to make, is that it ignores the other ways that... that um, that things cause that frustration. So what is causing the bullying to start with? Um, maybe that child has things that they need to resolve. Um, or um, what other things in the context or in um, the environment are creating the frustration? So if the frustration is like we spoke about under moral panic, um, unemployment, well... Let's get to the actual causes of that. Um, is it because people are not able to get into education? Is it because of um, 
economic decisions amongst government? Is it because of um, uh, lax borders? Uh, what are the what are the actual real issues that need to be engaged with, um, rather than um, dealing simply with the individual um, and the violence that they are um, engaging with? So we again need to to think bigger than just the individual. And in fact, I know this um, podcast is now um, getting on a bit, um, but uh, one of the very, very, very key things from this course that we haven't quite got to yet um, because of the, the lockdown, um, but I'd already started to stress this with you in class, is that um, when we think about crime and violence only as being about bad or mad people, we miss the whole picture, right? And that doesn't mean that individuals aren't responsible for their behavior. I know we had a lot of, uh, of, of commentary about that, about individual agency. But the, the bigger social picture also must be um, understood, unpacked, engaged with. It is, um, it is one thing to talk about incarceration, to talk about um, violence to talk about um, what individuals are doing and their lives and what's happening in their lives and the frustrations that they're feeling um, and that is obviously still important and individuals are absolutely still responsible for their own behavior but when that behavior comes from a society that is broken we must also fix the broken society or else we will just have more and more people who we then have to work with um, to fix them. Let's do both. Let's fix the individuals and fix the broken society. Okay. The last theory that I want to talk about is authoritarian personality. So authoritarian personality is fundamentally the idea that, um, as uh, in fact following exactly from, from where we've just left off, it's a about the ways that society socializes individuals to become violent. So certain kinds of societies tend to make violent people. And in particular, this theory argues that, that societies that are very ordered, where there's a lot of control, domination, power, where aggression is normalized, reinforced, um, particularly in families, but then also in broader social structures, that these kinds of things um, create soldiers in a way, right? We've spoken about that before, um, that when, when you are treated like just somebody who must follow the rules from childhood, both in your family and in the school structure and in the society structure, that you just need to follow the rules, it, you become a soldier. And what do soldiers do? They kill, right? So these kinds of societies that are very ordered and, um, and domineering and uh, an authoritarian, right, where you follow the authority, um, create violence. Um, and that in these societies where these relationships are characterized by these elements, children um, experience violence, they experience shame, and they accept and adopt violence as normal coping mechanisms 
ways to control and manage life expectations. So if as a child you're growing up learning that when you are bad you will be punished or when people are bad they will be punished, when you are an adult you believe the same thing. You believe that when people are bad they must be punished. And so when your wife doesn't cook you dinner on time, she's been bad, she must be punished. Right? Do you see the, the, the connection? And so um, the, when a whole society is shaped like that, to follow orders and to, to think like in those kinds of ways, um, you get uh, societies that are more violent than others. Um, and you get uh, greater amounts of violence in those kinds of society. So, um, obviously, um, that, that theory, as we know, came out of, uh, out of Germany, particularly during the Holocaust. Um, so, it's not easy to completely uh, compare it to other places in the world. But I think the idea is, is that some kinds of society uh, shape the, the ways that people think about and engage with violence, the, the normalization of violence at a social level, that these are, are, are key ideas that we want to take forward. So those are the four theories that we've covered so far. And they certainly speak to the movies that we have, have already watched and, and we'll continue to watch. We'll have, we have a couple more, I think, I think two more um, that we haven't yet seen. Um, that we will will watch once classes resume, um, but nonetheless, those are the four, the four theories and the key ideas behind them. As I said um, earlier, they're not uh, theories that I'm saying are the best theories or the only theories to understand crime and violence, but they're ones that are important in uh, the world of academia because they have been well established um, and are well regarded in relation to their ability to explain some kinds of crime and violence. So we want to use them, we want to critique them, we want to unpack them, we want to find examples of them um, going forward. So just a, a, an exercise that you can do at home um, before we get back to class is to think about the four theories that, that we have covered so far. And see if you can find three examples in the news media of these um, that have been covered recently. So they can be anything, right? It could be somebody stealing a car, I used that example earlier. It could be, um, you know, a survivor of, of uh, gender-based violence uh, speaking out. But try and think about if uh, which of these theories apply to the examples of crime and violence you're seeing in the media at the moment and try and find three for each theory that would be my um, recommendation obviously this is not for marks this is just a thinking exercise um, if you want to show it to me and I, I can give you some feedback on that that of course will help you with preparing for your other assessments but you don't have to so this is not compulsory um, but I would like you to um, keep thinking about these theories because um, as I said, then they're not, I mean, they seem quite straightforward in the way that we can understand them, but they actually um, have implications for the ways that we think about what's happening in the South African context. So think 
deeply. And that's really the point of research. So I'm going to leave the podcast at this point. Um, next week, I think I will um, start to um, go through some of the um, the other theories slash go through some of the assessments so that um, uh, we're ready for when you're back on campus. But nonetheless, these are the ones that we've already covered and they give us a refresher um, for going back into class and uh, continuing to to engage deeply, critically, um, and and uh, properly with the ways that we um, are thinking about crime and violence in the South African context. So um, I wish you all well for the weekend. Um, those of you who are hearing this before the weekend, um, and uh, and I will catch you in the next podcast. Cheers.